live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Grounded, Hong Kong cancelling all flights after another night of violent clashes. Aramco's new reliance, the Saudi Arabian oil giant taking a stake in India's reliance industries. And in need of a little coaching, Western retailers falling foul of China's territorial claims. It's Monday. Let's make a move. to first move this morning here in the United States. I tell you what, it may be midsummer, but there is nothing restful about the news flow. We're going to get a whole array of data this week to give us a sense globally of what the impact of the trade war is. We've also had protests in, in Russia, in France, yet again this weekend, and of course Hong Kong, which I think is helping to set the tone today. Take a look at what we're seeing for US stock market futures right now. We are lower by around half a percent. We've got bond yields in the United States under pressure gain to gold adding to last week's four percent gains investors well and truly looking at safe havens once again this morning yet for all the recent volatility the major averages here in the united states ending last week pretty much where they started were still just around three and a half percent away from record highs for the s p 500 that's up 16 percent year to date remember what liz young said to us on friday dividends the dividend yield on the S&P 500 still gives investors more income at this stage than buying a treasury, buying U.S. bonds. The 12-month view here is key for all the gains that we've seen year to date. We're up just 2.5% over the last 12 months. So the argument there is we're not overvalued for these markets. The question is, can the fundamentals ultimately hold up here for now? The U.S. economy remains relatively strong, so says Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon, who told CNN in an exclusive interview that there's a low probability of a U.S. recession near term, but trade, of course, remains a key risk. A currency war of some sort could clearly change all that. And we continue to watch China's moves here. The Chinese central bank guiding the yuan lower again today, but these are gentle moves. That remains key. We'll talk more about this throughout the show, but it is a sign that economic pressures remain on China, as do political ones. And therefore, the protests in Hong Kong remain front and centre too. Let's kick off the drivers there. Protests occupying the Hong Kong International Airport for a fourth day in succession. All flights have been cancelled, as I mentioned. Bed Weedman joins us now from Hong Kong. Ben, a lot of the talk on social media I was watching overnight, again, was the police behaviour and the action that we saw. What are you hearing from protesters? Because it looks a little bit calmer than what I can see behind you. No, the, the situation here is quite calm, actually. The number of protesters in the airport is just a fraction of it was about four hours ago when there were numbers we had not seen to date. Uh, but the real reason why they've come out here, and this was not a planned protest, uh, the sit-ins at the airport were supposed to be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday, nothing was planned until Sunday evening when it appears that the police decided to take a much more active role in the 
reacting with these demonstrations that are happening inside Hong Kong. So uh, they fired tear gas in a subway station for the first time ever. Uh, they injured at least nine of the protesters, among them a young woman who was hit in the eye with a beanbag fired by the police. And that picture of her has circulated on social media. So this is why these people came here today putting up signs like uh, stop shooting eyes, which is, of course, what happened to that young woman. And uh, as passengers, because there are people arriving in Hong Kong, no flights going out, they are chanting, don't trust Hong Kong police. The police very much at the moment, the focus of the anger of the protests at the airport. And on top of all that, after the airport was essentially closed down as far as departures go they're coming back tomorrow julia and it's incredible to see these images, I think, when we're outside and we're looking at, at what's going on in Hong Kong at this moment, that the flight's cancelled. What's also gone out on social media, and we've got the images as well, is of mainland Chinese police, armed police, preparing. And we've seen this a number of times now. I believe this is the third time. What are protesters saying about the fear, the risk, perhaps, that it's not the Hong Kong authorities that respond? At some point, China's police force will respond, the mainland police. In, in fact, Chinese officials have made it clear, according to the garrison law of Hong Kong, if the Hong Kong government requests Beijing provide troops in the event of social disorder or a natural disaster, they are perfectly entitled to come in and restore order uh, and if you speak to the when you speak to the protesters they will tell you about the five demands they have and they would like uh, the chief executive to step down but fundamentally the worry is that the arrangement worked out between the United Kingdom and mainland China in 1997 setting up this arrangement of one country two systems is slowly falling apart it is eroding as China slowly exerts more and more influence on the ground in Hong Kong. This one country, two systems arrangement is due to expire in 2047. People here are worried that that end of that period may be much sooner than that. Julia? Yeah, that timetable looks like it's accelerating. It's an interesting point. Ben, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you. And obviously, Cathay Pacific front and center with these canceled flights and warning their staff about joining these protests too. More on that later on in the show. For now, we'll move on to our next driver. Good news and bad news at the world's top oil producer, Saudi Aramco. They reported a 12% drop in net profits on lower oil prices. The good news is, though, it's still making more money than anyone else by a country mile. First half at Ned Intum, almost $47 billion. John Depterius joins us now. John, I'm stumbling over my words in my excitement here. That is some <laughs> incredible net income. Dwarfs Apple, poor ExxonMobil, $5.5 billion. This is a beast. Talk us through the details. 
Well, it is slightly lower than the first half of last year, Julia, but as you suggest, at $47 billion, it's in a league of its own. Uh, we often uh, overlook some of the key factors here that drive Saudi Aramco. The proven reserves of 268 billion barrels and very low costs of production, that's why the margins are so high. In some fields, they produce it for as little as $4 a barrel, according to sources I have within the company right now. And they are the world's largest producer by country mile, as you're suggesting, 10 million barrels a day. If you have energy-related products, it's up to 13 million barrels a day. The chief executive officer, Amin Nasser, in a statement was suggesting that this is optimal performance, considering that uh, prices for crude were down in the first half of 2019. He's talking about very good fiscal discipline going forward. And this is a lot to do with the optics uh, within Aramco and Saudi Arabia. As we speak, they're holding a teleconference, which I'll jump on to after our, our live shot. And in a sign of openness, it raises the question, of course, whether they're going to proceed with the initial public offering. And perhaps to put the cherry on top of the cake here, they announced a 20% stake into the company uh, owned by Mukesh Ambani, the multi-billionaire of India. Uh, this is important because it secures a big stake within to the future of the fastest growing energy market and demand of at least a half a million barrels a day. As you and I have discussed in the past, they have desires to uh, be refining up to 10 million barrels a day of crude by 2030. And the deal in India will get them very far down the road in that process. Yeah, to your point, all about optics here. They're a giant producer, but if they can boost that refining capacity, which this deal would provide, mm. then again, it helps us plot the path perhaps to that delayed and then delayed and then delayed IPO. What are we looking <laughs> at here very quickly, um, John? Are we talking 2020 here? Well, they say, say 2020 or 2021, but this is the trillion dollar question and you have to wonder about the valuation. The building blocks are there, Julia. Don't forget they had the bond offering in April with the demand very strong at $12 billion. They reevaluated the reserves in January, uh, which also was a big uh, tick uh, in the plus column. And they cons consummated that deal with Sabic for $70 billion, a big chemical giant. So all those things are done. But I think there's four key questions very briefly here. Uh, number one, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has a valuation in his mind of $2 trillion, not below $60 a barrel for North Sea Brent. That's going to be a challenge. Uh, Iran, the tensions in the region. You could see Iran, if they proceed with the IPO, wanting to strike Aramco facilities, which is a big question mark. And then we're coming into a global slowdown, perhaps in 2020, which is not good for oil demand. And the final point, I think, there's been damage against Saudi Inc., we cannot oversee the challenge of Jamal Khashoggi's murder in October 2018 and November 2017 when they arrested some 400 uh, Saudi billionaires in the name of uh, corruption. This has hurt foreign direct investment. So I would say Aramco is a lead horse, of course. Do they want to rush the IPO to kind of put away those fears that I talked about? Or do they wait until the market conditions are exactly right? And we'll find out more in the conference call this hour. Yeah, could be waiting a long time for that, though. We look forward to uh, hearing what they say on that call. John Defterius, thank you for that. All right, let's move Thanks. on. Our third driver now, that exclusive interview with CNN with the Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon. He says the U.S. economy looks solid. The chance of recession is relatively low. But you could probably guess the trade war is one of the huge key risks right now. Listen to what he had to say. But I think when you look at the base economy, the base economy is chugging along okay. And while uh, while it has been a long cycle, it was a very deep recession the last time, and it was a gradual, slow 
climb out. So it's not surprising that maybe this has gone on for a longer period of time. I'd also say that monetary policy all over the world has definitely played a role in stimulating asset price inflation and growth around the world. I think the economy is doing fine. There are things that are getting added to the equation, in particular the trade war with China, that is having an impact. The problem is, and Matt Egan joins us now on this, it's tough to gauge what that impact is. Goldman Sachs' CEO is saying it, we keep saying it on a daily basis. Yeah, that, that's right, Julie. I mean, David Solomon clearly sees the trade war as the biggest risk out there. And it's worth pointing out that his economics team just last week said that they no longer expect a trade agreement between the United States and China before the 2020 election. In other words, this risk is going to be with us for a while, at least if they're right. But what's interesting is Solomon did not sound all that pessimistic about the economy, at least relative to some of the warning lights that have been flashing in especially the bond market last week. Um, he, you know, he was asked about some of these uh, these comparisons that people like Jeff Gonlock have made between the current environment and the pre-crisis days of August of 2007. And he really does not seem to see any of those similarities right now. He said he doesn't see any economic crisis as imminent. But of course, Julia, it's worth pointing out that few on Wall Street did see the last crisis coming, at least until it was too late. <laughs> it's such a great point to make. The other question here, of course, is how the Federal Reserve responds, how global central bank resp respond here. He made some interesting points about this. Let's listen into this clip and then you can give us the context here. I think it's very, very important that we have an independent Fed, but I would observe, and this is not just a U.S. observation, when you look around the world, and I think this is the result of the fact that the world has in some way gotten used to the very, very significant, you know, easy money monetary policy that's a result of the crisis, monetary policy, seems, policy to me seems a little bit more attached to markets at the moment and also to politics. Is and that that's something That's something to watch carefully. I don't think that is healthy, and I think that's something to watch carefully. Interesting point to make, perhaps politics too attached to monetary policy here and monetary policy too attached to markets. Try and scrambling that one, Matt. Right, Julia. So, I mean, the two things there are he's basically saying, one, the economy and the market and maybe even politicians are a little bit too addicted to easy money after 10 plus years of it. And I think we can all agree that there's an element of truth to that. But the other point is that he's basically saying that the Fed is being led by markets and to some extent politics. And of course, it really should be the other way around, right? I mean, the Fed should be reacting to the economic fundamentals um, and then the market responds to that. Um, so it's interesting to me that he came out and, and pointed this out as sort of another risk to watch. Um, and of course, you know, the, the Fed uh, is, is supposed to be the one um, in charge here. I, I just think that, Julia, this kind of reflects um, sort of the whiplash that many on Wall Street have because the Fed raised rates four times last year. Um, as recently as December, it was expected to raise another two or three three times this year and instead it slammed on the brakes and it actually cut rates. So people are still trying to make sense of uh, sort of the, the, the volatility around the Federal Reserve. Yeah, and look at the tanking that we saw in the U.S. stock markets, global stock markets, as a result of the uh, apparent misstep in December. So, yeah, they're kind of damned either way. It's tough to be a Federal Reserve chief. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now on some of the other stories that we're following around the world.
The New York City's chief coroner is confident the disgraced money manager Jeffrey Epstein died by hanging himself in his jail cell where he was being held on sex trafficking charges. That's according to the New York Times. In a statement, the officials say she was awaiting further information before going public with the cause of death. The FBI and the U.S. Justice Department have opened investigations into Epstein's apparent suicide in federal custody. Italian far-right leader Matteo Salvini is pushing for a snap election, backing himself to win. After breaking rank with the country's ruling coalition, the deputy prime minister filed a no-confidence motion to begin that process. But Salvini now faces a growing risk that the remaining parties may team up to try and stop him. North Korea is threatening to freeze the South out of future talks and negotiate directly with the United States. State media cites a senior official denouncing joint U.S.-South Korean military exercises. The threat comes after Pyongyang released images of what appears to be short-range missile tests on Saturday. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but still to come on first moves, China in the cockpit. Beijing ups the pressure on Hong Kong by targeting its flagship airline, Cathay Pacific. And financing the future from a brain-reading bracelet to a zero-emissions car, we talk to the man who's helping to turn science fiction into fact. That's coming up on First Move. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. We're on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We are looking at a softer open for U.S. markets this morning. The major averages have fallen now for two straight weeks with the ongoing global recession fears. New numbers this week could show German GDP contracting in the second quarter. Remember, that would follow the U.K., the United Kingdom data last week, too. The flight to safety continues here. We've got the 10-year Treasury yield down below 1.7% again today. We've got the yen safe haven currency is gaining the dollar right now down about half a percent versus the end that would be the fourth day of straight gains actually for the, the japanese currency gold as well higher four percent gains as i mentioned earlier on the show last week alone let's talk this through tobias levkovich joins us now he's chief u.s equity strategist at city fantastic to have you with us great to be here Good morning what do you make of what's going on and can we tie that to impact on u.s firms and the outlook for the for the markets here for the rest of the year so i think a lot of it is more about the psychology business confidence consumer confidence things like that in terms of the trade issues or even the protests in Hong Kong and things like that. Um, but if you actually really rip apart the numbers and kind of look at it, about close to 72% direct sales for North America out of S&P 500 companies. And there's this perception that it's really more small caps, not large caps. And then if you throw in the fact that semiconductor sales, while very strong in Asia Pac, a lot of that is coming back to us. In other words, it's going to a facility that produces, let's say, a cable box or a smartphone, a server, and that's coming back to North America or to Europe. Wow, we need to, we need to break that down further. A lot of times on this show, we talk about the sensitivity of the smaller cap stocks in the United States to the domestic economy. If you're worried about the rest of the world, you buy into small caps because you get a safety bonus. But what you're saying is 72% of the international sales of... Or total sales. Total sales of U.S. companies, S&P 500 companies... Is to North America. Is domestic. It, mostly. I mean, what happens in the I U.S. to a great degree happens in Canada and yeah. Mexico. And I say it as a Canadian, I know it's always a little hard we'll to do We'll be very careful. <laughs> but, but if you kind of put it
say together, it's about 75% of North American sales for S&P 500 companies. It's about 77% or so for small caps. So they're not that far apart, yet people have this perception or misperception, I would say. Okay, where's your, um, where's your gauge? Assuming everything holds where it is today, we don't yet have a resolution on trade, the, the underlying concerns, but resilience, I'd say, particularly for the US consumer. What's your year-end target for the S&P 500? Because we made a point that we're up 16% year-to-date, but over the last 12 months, we're only up 2.5%. So look, we had a very bad fourth quarter last well, year, and that, that kind of reset the bar and gave you the opportunity for the gain. But we've been looking at 28.50 for the S&P 500 since really late last year. So we haven't changed our targets. Yeah. Um, we think there's a little bit more interesting things within the market where be a value versus growth tilt at this point would be interesting but the biggest problem we're facing really is if you look at the September October time frame you're likely to see companies having to guide down the rest of the year and next year right now consensus estimates for 2020 is earnings up 10% that's highly unlikely um, and we think something more in the 5% range is right. And it limits kind of the, you know, the market. We're looking at 3,000 by mid next year. So again, call it 4% upside, 2% dividend. Better than a poke in the eye, but it isn't like astoundingly great returns. To your point though about the psychology and the behavioral psychology here, when you've got companies coming out and going, look, actually we need to be a little bit more cautious here. There's lots of risks out there. We're not quite sure what's coming. I mean, we could get tariffs on a further $300 billion worth of goods hitting on, on September the 1st. Can you break it down for me in terms of the impact on manufacturers, the impact on the service sector? Because a lot of those that are optimistic say, look, the consumer here is really resilient in the United States. The service sector will remain so too. Look, I think the consumer sector is pretty resilient and job growth, wage growth are very hopeful. The problem is that not as much consumer or the corporate confidence, but rather cost of capital went up very sharply late last year, early this year. And it hasn't improved a whole lot. Now, what we're looking at is the Federal Reserve Board's commercial industrial lending right. sur surveys. And those have shown a tightening in capital. And that means the hurdle rates for businesses are higher. And they can't invest as aggressively. So the consumer's probably okay. But the service sector is also heavily driven by what's going on in the rest of the economy. So if you think of it just simply as if you're going to not produce as many cars, or you're not going to produce as much machinery, well, that has to be financed. There are legal contracts associated. It has to be shipped around with transportation. So there are services that are affected by very cyclical businesses. If you're saying that the borrowing cost for corporates has gone up, that's an argument for the Fed to cut here, as long as that gets passed on. So the inverted yield curve is part of the problem. The, the banks will respond to the inversion of the yield curve and say, we know that somewhere out there in the future, there's probably an economic tightening going on or some slowdown. So we're going to make sure that we're not sitting there with very exposed loans. And that's why they've tightened up. That's not an easy thing for the Fed to fix. Yeah, it's not. The challenge remains. All right. We're going to wrap it up there. Tobias Levkovich, Chief at US Equity Strategies at City. Thank you so much for talking to Thank us. Thank you very much. Fantastic. All right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. Plenty more to go on. We're going to be back out talking about Hong Kong and Cathay Pacific, the action that that company with the exposure to China is taking to say that their own workers must not get involved in the protest. We're also going to be talking about investing in science and technology, making things that might look impossible possible. We're counting down to the market open this morning. Stay with us. Move. You're watching CNN.
to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell for the first session this week. We are looking at a lower start to the trading week after last week's modest losses, of course, too. It's going to be an important few days for investors. We've got major U.S. retailers beginning to report their profits. It includes Macy's and Walmart. Remember, we were just discussing then the importance of the U.S. consumer here and the resilience that we've seen within this U.S. expansion. Is that confirmed by the data that we get from those two? Also, we're Alibaba and Tencent reporting this week to two companies very much tied to the health of the Chinese consumer too. And it's not just the US-China trade war that's a concern. South Korea saying today it's removing Japan from its list of trusted trade partners. Now, if you remember, Japan downgraded its relationship, its trade relationship with South Korea earlier this month. So uh, tip for tat going on over there too. All right, we're keeping an eye on Cathay Pacific as well and back to those protests over in Hong Kong. Cathay Pacific coming under pressure amid those protests. Cherise Pham has this report. An iconic Hong Kong business is under pressure. Cathay Pacific forced to cancel dozens of flights Monday night as thousands of protesters paralyzed the city's major international airport, grounding all flights out of Hong Kong. Cathay also warning staff Monday that any employees supporting or participating an illegal protest in Hong Kong could be fired, saying it has, quote, zero tolerance for illegal activities. The warning coming after China announced new restrictions on Cathay over the weekend. They include banning Cathay staff that took part in illegal demonstrations and violent attacks from flying to and from China and requiring Cathay to submit names and identification details of all crew flying into and over China for approval. China announced the restrictions after more than 1,000 Cathay workers took part in a strike last week. The strike forced Cathay to cancel more than 150 flights. The new Cathay restrictions, on top of the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, are hitting Cathay hard. Shares in the carrier fell nearly 5% on Monday. The stock has lost more than 11% this month. And the pain isn't going to end anytime soon. One analyst telling me that travelers will cancel and rebook with other airlines to avoid Hong Kong for months to come. Sharice Pham, CNN, Hong Kong. Just one of the issues that Chinese mainland, of course, and Beijing is dealing with. Let's talk this through with Brad Setzer. He's senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. He was deputy assistant secretary at the U.S. Treasury during the Obama administration. Brad, fantastic to have you with us. Oh, I'm standing on a box and I almost just fell off it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Let's talk about China right now because last week sentiment was dominated by the shift lower that we saw in the Chinese yuan. The, the decision by the government to, to let it weaken and now we seem to be watching this on a daily basis. You had some really quite fascinating comments to make about what's going on here and whether or not the currency should be a bit weaker. What do you make of what's going on? Well, the natural response to higher tariffs in the U.S. would be a weaker Chinese currency. It's negative for China's exports. And most countries' currencies, when they are faced with a negative shock, there tends to be pressure for their currency to depreciate. And we've seen that in South Korea, in Taiwan. All of these countries have seen pressure on their currencies, and their currencies have softened. China's just the exception because the United States is so sensitive, particularly to that seven level, that psychological level that we 
it's also because China has been sensitive to it as well. The Chinese have generally been managing their currency to try to keep it a little bit stronger than the market naturally wanted it to be. The surprise, to the extent there was a surprise on last Monday, was that China didn't treat seven as a barrier. But that was for perhaps optics, political reasons, just as a warning shot across I, the bow. Would you yeah, agree with I that? I agree with that. I think uh, China wanted the to indicate to the Trump administration that it still had some options to hit back, to push back, as the administration moves forward with tariffs, the last round of which seems to have surprised the Chinese. How viable an option is this? Because I think what we were talking about, and we continue to, to talk about when we see that currency weaken, even gently as it, as it has done over the past few sessions, is that at some point they're going to risk capital outflows. And we know that, that there have been capital outflows even subsequently following the 2015 shift lower that, that surprised everybody and created a great deal of volatility. How much weakening can China allow without risking those kind of outflows again? It's a great question. It's one which I don't think there is a good answer to. Uh, since 2015, China's done a lot of things to reduce its vulnerability to capital outflows. There are much tighter capital controls. And those controls seem to have been effective. China's made some technical changes in the way it manages its currency to allow it to push back subtly against the market. And though that signaling process looks to be effective. But if you push it too far, those techniques are likely to break down. And the risk is there could be a really big move. And that could prompt uh, further retaliation from the U.S. It's not an exact science. Retaliation from the United States. Let's talk about the other side here, because President Trump suggested that he'd like to see the U.S. dollar lower. He then in recent days has said, look, we're not going to do anything about that. What are the options here, given your role in the U.S. Treasury? What are the options here, perhaps, for the United States to weaken the U.S. dollar? Because Fed rate cuts don't seem to be doing it. Pricing further rate cuts don't seem to be doing it. What are the options? Because it's been done in the past. Look, the options aren't very good. Uh, Fed rate cuts, of course, that's not something the administration directly controls, generally would weaken the dollar. But in order for Fed cuts to weaken the dollar, other countries' central banks need to be on hold. Yes. So the administration, if it really wants to weaken the dollar, needs to think about things that strengthen other countries' economies. The U.S. also has the capacity to intervene unilaterally in the foreign exchange market, but it doesn't have a large stockpile of funds. So it has to be very careful and strategic because there's a risk that could be ineffective. Because you're saying that if they were physically going to intervene in the market, they'd have to sell dollars and buy other currencies. And for that, you actually need to have the money and the reserves to sell in order to buy something else. That's right. And the Treasury's own reserves are quite limited. Right. Under $100 billion. That's not a lot for a major currency pair. You know, it's interesting. The head of the largest farmers union in the United States has said, look, this White House, this administration is supporting us financially, but clearly the farmers are caught in the crossfire here with China saying we're not going to buy fresh agricultural produce. Do you think when you've got the largest farmers union saying we need to weaken the dollar here, perhaps it's pressure ultimately to come to a trading deal, a trade deal here with the United States and China? I think the, the hostility, the escalation between the U.S. and China likely has gone so far that a deep deal 
is going to be very hard, the kind that addresses the structural concerns. I don't rule out, though, that you could get another kind of truce where the U.S. backs off a little bit on either Huawei or on the last round of tariffs, and China commits to buying some of this year's harvest. Probably the best hope for farmers, though, is a trade deal with someone else that indirectly addresses their concerns. <laughs> that offsets the, uh, the loss of a Chinese buyer. Very quickly, then, your probability that we see a materialization of a currency war given the difficulty for the United States here, the difficulty for China, really, in weakening their currency. Is the probability here actually pretty low? It's not that low. I don't think you can take... When the president is saying something, the president does control the, a lot of uh, tools. And until the president stops talking about it, I think you have to put a material risk. I don't think it's a 50-50 risk. I don't think it's a 1 in 10 risk. Somewhere between 1 and 50. Uh, somewhere between 10 and 50 percent. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. Fantastic to chat to you. Brad Zetzer there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, investing in the world of tomorrow. Lux Capital co-founder Josh Walsh tells us why his company's betting on cutting-edge science. Stay with us. We'll back in two. Welcome back to the show and straight into the chat room with Josh Wolf. He's the co-founder and managing partner of venture capital firm Lux Capital, which makes investments in tech and science that are, quote, on the outermost edges of what's possible, but possible. Josh Wolf is uh, with us now. Josh, fantastic to have you with us. Great to be here. You've just raised a billion dollars. You've got $2.4 billion now to play with. Talk to me about the ethos of, of what you do and what you look for. Well, it's funny. In investing, people say that the most dangerous words are this time is different. <laughs> yes. I actually think that you can find other words that are the most valuable, which are, it will rot your brain. Now, any time that a parent has uttered those words, it literally presaged the next $10 billion industry. In the 1950s, you had rock and roll. In the 60s and 70s, you had uh, television. In the 80s and 90s, it was the rise of the chat rooms and the internet. Stay off those things. Yep. And now, in the past 10, 15 years, it's been video games. Video games and science fiction have become the progenitor for all the biggest innovations that we're seeing today. But how do you separate, and you say this, look, we try and take what is science fiction to science fact. How do you make a choice on something that perhaps sounds incredible in theory, but will never actually make it in practice versus something that will succeed. Well, first of all, it comes to the people. Now, you want visionaries and you want people that are really thinking bold, but you also want honest people. Okay. And there's a lot of people that are more on the fi than the sci. More fiction, more hype. And so the number one question that you ask as an investor is, does it work? You know, you get into these situations with Theranos and all kinds of other frauds where the hype is high, it lowers the cost of capital, and you usher in really bad actors. You mentioned a really interesting one there. We've talked about Theranos on this show. You didn't look at this. You weren't involved at the time. But would you have gone absolutely no way simply because of the secrecy here? Is that one of the elements here? Someone has to be very open about what they're doing and what they're not doing. Well, I think if you're, if you're, you know, the, the mantra today is FOMO, fear of missing out. But I think that's going to shift to shame of being suckered. And people are really worried about being suckered. And so I think you want to find these attributes of fraud. So, you know, you have people that don't share things. You have people that decorate boards with military people and octogenarians, try to social signal, you know, people with high pedigree. And so there's a lot of signs. Uh, but I will say it's really hard at the inception or conception of a really big, bold idea to know if the person is visionary or delusional, if they are fraudulent and malevolent or really well-intentioned. And so in venture capital, you put a little bit of money in and you try to test that out and you ask, does it work? You avoid the commitment bias and then you pull back your funding if it turns out that it's not working. Okay, so for how many how many 
um, ideas do you get with people coming to you or you look at them, you research? How many do you say absolutely not versus the ones where you actually decide to No, it's 99.9% .9 of the things you're saying no to, right? It's, it's, it's a tragedy in a sense because you get a thousand people that come in and maybe 10 of them are you're actually taking meetings with and one you're actually funding. And then of the ones you fund, only a fraction of those work out. This is a very high risk you know, high reward uh, endeavor, but so but important. What's the failure rate then of the ones that you then invest in? How many don't work versus the ones that do? Because you've had some incredible successes. Oris Health is one of the big ones, a robotics company that I know Johnson Johnson bought. But talk to me about the failure rate. Yeah, so you have a J and J that buys an Oris for six billion dollars. It yes. makes up for a lot of losers. Your your typical mantra in venture is about a third of your companies are total zeros. Now, of course, a priori, you don't know which ones are going to be the zeros. About a third, you make your money back, and another third, you end up with 10x or more. So in total, you might end up with 3x cash on cash, and then you're delivering above market A returns. third fail, a third break even, a third are real winners. Talk to me about Control Labs, because this is a really interesting Well, this one. is one, you know, in a partnership, you need non-biased people, and I am a really biased person in our partnership, very bullish on this technology. It is the future of brain-machine interfaces. So this is not about an implantable in your head, which I think is absurd. This is about being able to sense from your muscles and your nerves on your forearm, on your hands, what your intention is of the thing you want to control. So whether you are typing or changing the knob on a volume on a stereo or you are flipping the lights, all of those things are your brain telling your muscles, I want to control that thing. And in the very near future, you will be able to just think about moving the thing or controlling the thing without actually touching a button. Your body basically becomes a remote control for everything around you. When I was watching the video on this, it made me think of Star Wars. This is a Jedi mind control. Control. And with the founder, who looks like a fascinating individual, he Reardon, was a yes. Microsoft um, Internet Explorer. He said to you, and you said actually, how long is it going to take me to do, you know, to have, see this technology in practice? And he used a reference to Formula One, and he said he could teach you to control a Formula One. How quickly? A Formula One car. In, in just, you know, minutes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the technology here is about it adapting to you. And this is a trend, I call it the half-life of technology intimacy. 50 years ago, you had a giant ENIAC computer. 25 years ago, you got your desktop. 12 years ago, you got your laptop. Six years ago, you got your iPhone. Three years ago, you got your iWatch. And then a year and a half ago, you have your AirPods. The directional arrow of progress, which is what we as investors try to find, is trending towards technology conforming to you instead of you hunched over a QWERTY keyboard. So the ability to train those technologies and vice versa is really shrinking. When you first started talking about this, you made a jab, I think, at Elon Musk's Neuralink because they talked about, and we've discussed this on the show, drilling holes into your head, inputting the technology to allow you to download data. You're saying never going to happen. They say we're ready to do it. Well, certainly not ready to do it. Will it ever happen? Sure. You know, I'm a believer in long term. But I think, again, science fiction, science fact, you have to balance reality and what's here, particularly if you're raising money from investors and being responsible in a fiduciary. So I think there's a lot of irresponsibility in raising the hype. Now, you said before about science fiction and, and the gap, you know, is shrinking between sci-fi and sci-fact. And you mentioned Star Wars. And, and there are so many incredible real-life inspirations that are happening now. You've got volumetric display, like a holograph that you would see out of Princess Leia communicating, that is happening in a company like Looking Glass. You've got 3D scanning, like a company like Matterport, where you can take all of the atoms in a room and digitally scan them into bits and think about the potential for that. And so I'm really excited about using science fiction as an inspiration for science fact, but it has to be real, it has to be near term, and if you're taking money from investors, you gotta be honest. You've just raised a billion dollars. That's where we started this discussion. How do you convince people to give you money? 
you're obviously having this discussion with them. You're saying, look, we're on the boundary here of what may be impossible may also be possible. What is it about you that they trust? Well, I think it's our scrutiny of the entrepreneurs. If we were just, you know, throwing out money and, and just batting down, uh, you know, lots of people in the field, I think we'd have a very low uh, success rate. I think some of the successes we've had, Oris for $6 billion, Curion for $400 million, Lux Terra sold to Cisco for $660 million. These are the kinds of returns where you can say we're investing in really hard science, and that hard science is turning into really hard profits. And so that's a good thing. Now, the kinds of stuff we invest in, it's not 5,000 competitors. We're not investing in the Groupons and the social media stuff where it's really hard to pick winners. You're investing in things where there might be only five companies in the space. And so it makes it a little bit easier for you in the proverbial security selection to pick a winner from five companies. And those companies, have really high engineering barriers, they have intellectual property, they have a talent pool that's really scarce and hard to replicate. When you find those things and they all come together, it increases the odds of you being successful. You're also investing in uh, autonomous vehicle technology, 3D printing as well. We don't have time to discuss it, but we are going to get you back to talk about both of these things. You did have a quote there that I want you to repeat, and it was about predicting the future. And you said the best way to predict the future is to invent it. You know, and, and this isn't my quote. These are from, you know, famous uh, sci-fi authors. And, and But it is true. The best way to predict the future is to invent it. And for us as investors, you find the people that are literally inventing the future. And to a man or a woman, if you ask them what inspired you, they almost always say it was science fiction. I saw something. I read a graphic novel. I was inspired <laughs> by that movie. I wanted to make it so. And we provide the funds to fuel that vision. Awesome. Josh, a pleasure. Great pleasure. We'll get you Thanks. back. Thank you, Josh Wolfair, the co-founder and managing partner and venture capital Lux Capital. All right, we're going to take a break. Are you in need, though? Someone is of some coaching on Beijing's one China policy. Find out why some Western retailers have faced a Chinese consumer backlash next. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief kicking off with Brack Locks. Brack Rocks juicy purchase. The world's largest asset manager paid $875 million for a stake in Authentic Brands, becoming its largest shareholder. Authentic Brands owns companies like Juicy Couture and Sports Illustrated. The BlackRock deal valued as valued at $4 billion, including debt, according to the Wall Street Journal. Thomas Cook has seen its shares plummet by 20%. The world's oldest travel company says existing shareholders will see their stakes diluted as part of a rescue plan. It's in talks to raise more than $1 billion from its largest shareholder, the Chinese company Foson. And Coach of Versace are joining a growing list of brands under attack by Chinese internet users over the country's One China policy. Both companies reference places like Hong Kong as countries which China, of course, claims as their territory. CNN business reporter Hadass Gold joins us now from London. Hadass, the timing couldn't be worse when you've got the Chinese authorities blaming the United States for fueling protests in places like Hong Kong, and then big brands like this do this. Talk us through the details. Yeah, Julia, these are these big Western luxury brands that have important markets in China. You said Coach, Givenchy, and Versace all came into hot water over the past few days over some of these T-shirts that were sold on their websites. They're sort of like band tour T-shirts that listed cities on the back. But as you noted, some of those cities, instead of noting that they are in China, as China believes they are, listed them as sort of independent. Maybe they'd say Macau in Macau or Taipei, Taiwan. This angered a lot of Chinese online. On Weibo, Coach was the most searched 
term on Monday, which means that they were getting probably almost a billion search, uh, search hits probably in one day. And this caused a lot of uproar. And they've also, these brands have lost some of their important brand ambassadors. These are important models and actresses and boy band members like Lu Wen, Jackson Yi, and Yang Mi, who all pulled out of their partnerships with these brands over these t-shirts. Now, all of the companies immediately said that they pulled these t-shirts, that they were old t-shirt designs that were discontinued, and they put out statements saying that they are fully aware of the severity of this error. Givenchy said they always respected China's sovereignty and firmly adhered to the One China uh, policy. And Donatella Versace herself put out even a personal statement saying that she never wanted to disrespect China's national sovereignty. But as you can see, Julia, how quickly these companies acted shows not only how sensitive the situation is right now, as you noted, with Hong Kong, but also how important the Chinese market is to these companies. Chinese shoppers, Julia, are apparently responsible for about a third of global luxury sales. Absolutely. I mean, Taiwan's a, a different case, but when you're talking about Hong Kong and Macau, ouch. Hardest gold. Thank you so much for that update. All right. Let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for the major U.S. markets at this moment. We are lower. The Nasdaq, as you can see, underperforming. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time to follow the thread. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.